Well, it's March, and at the Reeves house, that means that you have to start paying attention to your calendar because April's coming. And April 1st has been a day of many years in the Reeves family where somebody's been got. I have been got multiple times by my wife, and you'll have to get her to tell you the story because it's embarrassing how bad she got me. But in 99, I got her. I was driving, I was driving back from a trip. I was heading back. We lived in Atlanta. I was heading back to the house. And uh, I was just stewing in my mind, how could I get Cheryl? I recognized it was April 1st, so I had, had to come up with a plan. And I called uh, a guy named Chad Clarkson. We had just left a church in Clemson that we had planted. And Chad was the new young leader. And he and I got on the phone. We were laughing, trying to work out an idea. And we came up with one. And, and I had him call Cheryl, and this is what he did. When he called Cheryl, he said, uh, Cheryl, you've got to get John for me. And, and uh, Cheryl said, he's not here um, can I have him call you? And Chad's like, you can't have him call me. I'm, I'm in jail. And Cheryl's like, oh, my God, why are you in jail? And Chad went through this long, elaborate story about how he got caught with open container. And, and Cheryl was very gracious to him. And she said, well, I'll call John, and I'll see if I can get him to go, go get you. So I'm driving down the road. You ever been in this spot? This is back in the day when, when we had bag phones, and Cheryl calls me. And I'm already laughing because I, I know what's happening. And I pick up my bag phone, I, I put it to my ear, and, and uh, I start talking to Cheryl. And she says, John, I, I, I don't know if you guys do this, but Cheryl, under pressure, gets really, really calm. John, I have some bad news, and I just want you to listen for a minute. So she begins to tell me the story of Chad being in jail. And by the time she's done with the story, I erupt. In anger. And I tell her, that serves him right. He gets exactly what he deserved. And she's like, John, grace. John, grace. She just kept saying, John, grace. She goes, you teach the church grace. You need to have grace. And I, I just held my line. I was like, no, nah, he can sleep in jail. I'll go get him tomorrow. And so she, uh, we hung up. She calls Chad back. And it was perfect because he had a buddy of his at his house. His buddy's name was Rick. And Rick picked up the phone. He goes, this is Sergeant. And made up a name. And and then he says, I'll go get Chad. So he, he, he walks over and gets Chad out of the cell and puts him on the phone. And, and Chad goes through this story with Cheryl. Cheryl, he's got to come get me today. He can't wait till tomorrow. And Cheryl's going, Chad, I'm so sorry. He's not going to come get you. And Chad finally closes it by saying, he can't get me tomorrow. It's April the 2nd. I can't get out on April the 2nd. And it, hilarious because Cheryl never, let, never put it together. And finally he goes, April Fool's. And they erupted laughing, and Rick and Chad called me, and we were laughing. I'm driving down the road. I'm laughing, and I figured I should give Cheryl, like, a little bit of time before I call her back. So five minutes, ten minutes, I I, I ring, and she doesn't answer. And then I I wait another five minutes, and she doesn't answer. And you guys know what I'm thinking. I'm like, oh, crud. I am a dead man. And so finally I call back. It's been 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes. And, and the phone rings, it rings, it rings. About the fifth ring, my seven-year-old Isaiah gets on the phone. I go, Isaiah, where's your mama? He goes, Daddy, she went to go get Chad out of jail. And I, I put the phone down. We started laughing. She flipped it on me. It was the greatest April Fool's ever. I hope y'all have some, I hope y'all have some fun, like, fun like that. This particular Sunday... I tell that story because I really want us to get that idea. Grace, radius, grace. Let me pray. Some of y'all want to pray for me. Some of y'all want to pray for Cheryl that she's married to me. But let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to teach us about grace. 
Father, you are the ultimate giver of grace. Uh, Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for us. Thank you for uh, your great generosity to us. Lord, as we walk through this passage that you had recorded for us, we pray that you would uh, bring it to life for us. Teach us. Teach us uh, not just in our heads and, and in our intellect. We pray that you would drive it down deep into our hearts. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to be gracious. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So grace, radius, grace. What does that look like? I think uh, in our day and time where we pass out forgiveness like, uh, uh, like candy, we pass it out so quick, so often that, that this idea of grace sometimes gets diluted and we don't actually know how to use it in the real world. So I'm really excited to read this passage to you. It's in Genesis chapter 43. And if you've been with us for a little while, it's about a man named Joseph. And he is going to model for you what grace looks like. It is a, uh, it's a shocking story. It, 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 it's kind of sucked me in because I keep thinking this Old Testament, these first five books of the Old Testament, the majority of them are the law. And the people of Israel, they know the law. They know this one line in there that says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Like it's an intense law. That's how the world turns. And in the midst of all that law, you're going to see the story about a man who is, who is anything but legal. He's gracious. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Genesis chapter 43. If you remember, uh, Joseph has 11 brothers. Ten have come to, come to visit him and bought food. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. The land is in famine. And in Egypt, Joseph has stored up food to feed everybody. So these ten brothers have come and bought food. Long story. They had interaction with Joseph. And Joseph, uh, they, he, he put one of the brothers, Simeon, in jail and told them to go home and get their younger brother and come back. If you haven't been with us, this is your first Sunday. You can go back and listen to it on podcast and get all caught up with the story. You can just go open your Bible to Genesis and, and read and catch up. So uh, the brothers now are, are, are preparing to come see Joseph again. They're bringing their baby brother and they're going to attempt to buy some more food to take back to their families in Canaan. And so the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money and headed off with Benjamin. And they finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, these men will eat with me at noon. Take them inside the palace and then go slaughter an animal and prepare a big feast. And so the man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's palace. Check this out. The brothers were terrified when they saw they were being taken to Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks last time that we are here. He plans to pretend that we stole it and he will seize us and he will make us slaves and take our donkeys. This is pretty amazing contrast as you see the brothers who believe in the way of the world. What's the way of the world? The way of the world is payback, right? You don't pay your rent this month. It's going to be pretty. It's not going to be very long until they come move you out of your home. You don't pay your, pay your mortgage. You miss a couple months. And the next thing, they're going to ask you for a short sale or, or, or they're going to foreclose on your house. It doesn't take long, right? Well, we all know the way the world works. It's payback. You, you pay for what you get. And the brothers completely believe in payback. And they 
when they hear that they're going to Joseph's house, they think the worst because they know the way of the world. I want you to understand something. The way of the world is consistent. It's consistent across all religions, virtually, right? This idea that you get what you what you put out is is goes across all lines. I mean, that's what we call karma, right? When you talk about karma, what is that's that's the Hindu idea that if if you do somebody wrong, wrong's gonna come back on you. You do somebody right, right's gonna come back on you. That's consistent with the with the Buddhist. The Muslims have a code of law that literally says something very similar to the idea of karma. If you read the Old Testament and Judaism and we got the covenant and then we got the law and you, you saw we just talked about this idea of eye for an eye. You can even break out the atheists and the atheists believe that the strongest survive. That there's this food chain and, it's, and, and it works like the law and you, you can't push back against it. It's, it's the way of the world. You can even go down to uh, some evangelical churches, churches that teach the gospel of Jesus Christ out loud from the scripture, but they don't model it and they don't practice it. As a matter of fact, you could associate them more with the idea of ungrace than of grace. It's uh, scary because ungrace destroys families. It damages people. When you go to a church like that, even though the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, people are hurt. It's a place that's uh, dangerous to be. Uh, Mark Twain said it like this. They're good in the worst sense of the word, which I thought, thought was a great way to say it, because oftentimes we'll take this, this teachings about Jesus and somehow align them with all the teachings of the world and, and really manipulate and pressure people with something other than grace. For today, we'll just call it ungrace. I thought the most uh, hilarious part about this passage is these brothers wrestle with payback and this question of karma. Are they going to get back what they've, what they've already caused uh, they, they say this, then he will seize us, make us slaves. That's pretty bad. I love the, I love the last line. And they will take our donkeys. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking, but I'm pretty sure the prime minister of Egypt doesn't need their donkeys. I don't know what it is about us men where we're pretty connected to our mode of transportation. Some of y'all have seen your truck in the parking lot. Like you're pretty connected to that thing. A few, uh, few weeks ago, I got to rent a car. I was going on a trip and I rent the cheapest car, and then I go $1 up. I don't know if y'all do this, but I go $1 up, and I get a midsize because I, I don't want the smallest economy car. When I got there, they had none, which is awesome because that means you're going to get to go up. And So all they had were pickup trucks. I was going on a long trip, and they had a premium car. It was a Dodge Charger, and I had to ask Joe Pitts, and I wrote it down because I didn't know what it was. It's a Charger. 392 Hemi scat back with 485 horsepower. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, when I touched the gas in that car, it was awesome. It made all kind of noise. And when I was coming on the on-ramp onto the highway, I had no problem getting up speed. It was, it was a blast. Cheryl heard me. I came by the house because I just wanted her to hear it. Came by, she could hear me a mile away. She said it was, it was, it was a performance car. It, it got it done. It even had, had the heated steering wheel. That thing was, 
I get it. So I, I, I get this atta- attachment to our, our donkeys. There's, there's this weird thing among men. We know the way of the world. We know that there's payback. And somebody's going to come take my donkey because I've done something wrong. Uh, these brothers are wrestling with this truth in this world that there is no grace, that everything is payback. And then on the flip side, in the same, in the same group of verses, you got Joseph and he's already distributing grace. He looks different. See how it reads in uh, verse 16. These men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace. Then go slaughter an animal and prepare a big feast. Break out all the fixings for them. We're going to celebrate. He, he's giving them something that they don't deserve. Anybody know the definition of, of grace? Some of you grew up in church. You probably heard this over and over. Unmerited favor. Uh, the definition I like is free and unmerited favor. You get it like, like there's nothing you did to earn it. It's free. It's given to you. It's unmerited. And Joseph is distributing to his brothers, though they don't even know what's going on, this, these gifts of grace. I wanted to uh, read you this passage for a little bit, and I want you to feel the grace that uh, Joseph is distributing. I want you to uh, <laughs> compare it to payback and taste the freedom that Joseph seems to have and the bondage that his brothers seem to be in. Check it out. The brothers approach the manager of Joseph's household. So they're coming up to the door and they spoke to him at the entrance of the palace. Sir, they said, we came to Egypt once before to buy food. But as you were, as we were returning home, we stopped at night and opened our sacks. And there we discovered each man's money. The exact amount paid was at the top of the sack. Here it is. We've brought it back with us. You get it? They believe in payback. Hey, that no comprehension of grace. Somehow we got this money. We're getting it back to you. We're making everything right. We're even. He says, uh, we also have additional money to buy more food. And we have no idea who put the money in our sacks. Pretty, pretty cool response from the manager. Relax. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, must have put the treasure in your sacks. I know I received your payment. He relaxes them by speaking their language, their language of payback. And then he released Simeon also and brought him out to them. Follow with me a few more verses. I really need us, Radius. I need us to get this concept of grace. The manager then led the men into Joseph's palace. He gave grace, them water to wash their feet and provided grace, food for their donkeys. And they were told that they would be eating there. So they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. I don't know about these gifts that they brought from Jacob. They're bringing them to the prime minister. They don't know that it's Joseph yet. And so in many ways, they're bribes. They're, they're uh, again, they're payback. They're their way to have influence. When Joseph came home, they gave him gifts that they had brought him and bowed low to the ground before him. And after greeting them, he asked, how's your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? Again, what you think the brothers are thinking? They're thinking grace. The prime minister remembers that our dad is old and that he might be a little sick. And he's asking about it. he's extending to them. Yes, they replied, our father, your servant is alive and well. And they bowed low again. And I want you to catch this next thing. Joseph looked up at his brother, Benjamin. NIV reads like this. And he 
lifted his eyes and he saw his brother, Benjamin. You can imagine them bowing down on the ground, all 11 of them. Who knows what order that they're in? And as they come up, and I don't know if Joseph bowed to them or or, or exactly what happened, but as he lifted up his eyes, he sees his baby brother, Benjamin, the only one of the 11 brothers that was the exact same blood as him, right? Same mom, same dad. Their mother, Rachel, died at the birth of Benjamin, and he hasn't seen this boy for a long, long time. And there he is, his blood brother. It seems like this uh, kind of amazing moment for him. And it, it seems to stir this grace that's already within, within Joseph. And he asks a question. He, can, he, he keeps his disguise on. He says, is, your younger brother the one, is this your younger brother you told me about? And Joseph asked, may God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he went into a private room where he broke down and wept. I don't know about you, but I had a few moments like this in my life where I really want to retreat because my emotions are out of control. But this one's particularly beautiful because you're talking about 20 years since Joseph has seen his baby brother. So he sees Benjamin for the first time, and he's already, as we talked a few weeks ago, got this posture of reconciliation He's already positioned himself where he wants to receive his brothers, but he's been testing them. As, as many of you heard last week, he continues to test them. And, and here's, it's not quite the end of the story, but here it is. Benjamin's really alive, and there's all this joy and probably pain as well welling up in him, and he weeps, and he weeps. I love, I love verse 31 because this is what I would do. And after washing his face, I need some hot water to get the red marks out of my eyes if I've been crying much. He washes his face, and he came back out, keeping himself under control, and then he ordered him to bring out the food. And the party began. The waiter served Joseph at his table, and his brothers were served at a separate table, and the Egyptians who ate, uh, who ate with Joseph sat on their own table because the Egyptians despised Hebrews and refused to eat with them. And Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amo- am- amazement, he seated them according to their age, from the oldest to the younger. So I, I don't know, in my mind, I got two white Sam's tables. You know those ones that you pop them up? So I got them on a line like this and I, they, the chairs are all lined around or, or perhaps it's three uh, white Sam's tables and all the brothers are on one side. I probably would work better. And, and he starts over here on the left with his older, oldest brother, Reuben, and he works his way all the way down the line, one at a time. And at the very end, he puts Benjamin. Now, it's easy to understand how he put Benjamin at, at the end because he's clearly the youngest and he's the one who wasn't here before. But lining up the other 10, that's shocking. Uh, uh, one of my professors back in college, we called him Dr. Dave. And he, was, uh, he, was a, he had his doctorate in ceramic engineering, but he loved the Bible. And he, he did the math on this. There's, a 30, there's one in 39,917,000 chance that anybody would be randomly be able to get all those brothers in their right seats. Now, some of them probably clearly looked older than others, but, but many of these guys, are, they're up in age, and so they, they'd be very difficult to tell. And Joseph lines them up and just enjoys the moment of the brothers being wowed by his understanding. And then there's this really great moment. It says, uh, Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the brother. So I imagine Joseph going over to his table, 
I don't know what y'all like to eat, but I love my wife's mashed potatoes. I don't know what she puts. Lots of butter. I know she fills that. He fills that his plate up with mashed potatoes and he goes over to Reuben's plate. And, and I, I don't know. I got him with a big metal spoon and he's scooping it out. And he puts a spot on Reuben. He slides down the line and puts it on somebody else. And he's working his way down the line and maybe Dan's in the middle. And, and then he gets down to Benjamin. I don't know this grace in him. This love for a younger brother, this, 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 un, this, he, Benjamin hasn't earned any of it, but he just loves him. And he, I can just imagine him taking five scoops, five scoops and popping them on Benjamin. And he works his way back down. I love some turnip greens. I don't know if you like them. I need some ham in it to make it just right. And, and some onions, a little bit of onion in there, but it starts with a turnip greens and scoop for Reuben and then five scoops for Benjamin. And you, you pick what you want. They didn't have roast beef. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. They probably didn't have roast beef, but they they worked their way down the line and he feeds all the guys and Benjamin gets five helpings. And you're just watching a man who owes them nothing. If he owes them anything, he owes them revenge or justice. Instead, he's distributing get grace and he's distributed literally with a spoonful. You wonder with Benjamin if he's a. just demonstrating grace or just overwhelmed with his love for baby brother? Or is he still testing the brothers to see if they're going to be offended that baby brother gets more than them? Are they going to be jealous? Are they going to treat Benjamin like they did Joseph? Who knows? He's probably a little bit of both, probably some grace and some joy and still this test as he walks his brothers to a road of healthiness. The last line I underline, I love it. It says, so they feasted. And they drank freely with him. I love the word freely. Because these brothers, when they showed up on the scene, all they knew was payback, ungrace. There's no freedom in that. You sit at the table and you're afraid for your life. And now they're sitting with Joseph at the table and there's this freedom, right? Now, you may have been in a situation where there's been some freedom and you've had some fun. A lot of times when folks have a few too many drinks, there's freedom. And some dude thinks he's a comedian and he laughs at all his own jokes. And another guy thinks he's, he's Mike Tyson and he's, he's ready to fight everybody because he's got this weird freedom. But it's a broken and, and screwed up freedom. In this particular case, it seems that this grace, this powerful grace that Joseph distributes has overwhelmed the ungrace. Be really interesting for us, ladies. If we were known as the people in this town that walk can walk into situations where the way of the world is it, where it's always about payback, but we bring this this gift that God has given us, grace, we bring it to the party, and we overwhelm the party with it, and all of a sudden a party goes from from really looking to see who's judging who to this place. Of freedom. That's what we're dreaming about for our church. I want you to go back to one of the verses early. I read through it quickly and I, I, I've just been, it's the verse that stood out to me all week. It's this moment where this manager of Joseph's house is conversing with these brothers, these Hebrew brothers, these brothers that have been raised in Jacob's house who's had visions from God, these brothers whose grandfather is Isaac, these brothers whose great-grandfather is Abraham, the one who was given the promise. And this Egyptian household manager shares the gospel with them. It's shocking. Check it out. He tells them to relax and don't be afraid. 
You can only relax and not have fear if you understand grace. If you understand that someone could give you something that you don't deserve. And then he explains it. He says, your God. Now, we read a couple chapters before, and we know that Joseph told the servants to put this money back in the bags. But his, his manager, who's probably learned Hebrew from Joseph, but also has learned about Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And he understands, though Joseph put the money back in their bags, it was a gift from God. And so here it is. Your God, the God of your father, Jacob, must have put that treasure back in your sacks. And he goes, I know I received your payment. He teaches, I love this, Joseph has loved his radius so well that he's taught the people, the servants in his house about grace. And now this guy, this manager, we don't even know his name. He's a distributor of grace. Man, the dream is at radius that each of us would take the grace that God has poured into us and pour it into somebody else. Right? That it would overflow out of us and pour into somebody else and they would share grace in our community. And that over the course of a lifetime, we, like Joseph, would have impact on all kinds of folks. Not, not, not that we're trying to get any kind of fame out of the deal. It's just the way to reach the world. Our world is dying for the message of grace. Grace is the church's best gift to this world in the form of Jesus, particularly Jesus on the cross. It's our best gift to this world. Last time... Uh, I talked to everybody at Radius. Um, I got home and Cheryl said, it sounded like you didn't vote. People are going to think you didn't vote. I'm like, baby, I said I didn't vote for either of the candidates. I didn't say I didn't vote. She said, it sounded like you said you didn't vote. I said, you think people are worried about that? I'm like, She's like, I know they're worried. So everybody hear me real quick. I voted last time. I vote every time. I don't always vote for who's on the page. Sometimes I vote for somebody else that I like. So, so it is what it is. We can have that conversation another time. I need to tell you what I'm worried about this election season. I'm worried that we, the body of Christ, are not going to be gracious. That we're not going to listen. That we're not going to look like Jesus during this season. It's this this gift that we have in our pocket to take out of here and walk into our neighborhoods and on our jobs and give it away. There's a story of a, a conference in Britain and they've got all these scholars and, and a variety of religions gathered together. And there's this debate going on. What does Christianity particularly uh, contribute to all the world religions? And so uh, the Christian scholars, the, the first things they throw out is, is uh, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. He was born as a man. The virgin birth, right? But some of the other religions had something that was like the incarnation. So then they go to the go-to, right? Easter, the resurrection. We've got an empty tomb. And so a couple of the other religions actually had a story somewhat like that. Now, they couldn't prove it like we can in Christianity and use it as apologetic, the empty tomb. But nonetheless, they had a story of some sort of a resurrection. And evidently, C.S. Lewis was not in the room and uh, C.S. Lewis walked in the room and he's like, what's the debate about? And everybody's like, we're just trying to temp, uh, determine what is the particular contribution that Christianity has uh, to all religion. He goes, that's easy. It's grace. It's this 
idea that the followers of Jesus have been given something. They didn't earn it. Unmerited favor, which is a terrific part of our heritage and core to our theology is that you and I did not deserve to know God, but he invited us into relationship by sacrificing his son on the cross. We call that that grace. It's embedded in all of Jesus' teachings. The teachings of Jesus, if you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are some of the stories that he tells. I mean, the miracles are terrific, but some of the stories that he tells are just shocking. The one as a kid that bothered me the absolute most was this story in Matthew. It's in, in verse 20. It's called the parable of the vineyard workers. You remember the story? So there's this, this farmer, and he hires some guys. Early in the morning, they go to work. They work all day. He hires some guys at 9 in the morning, and they go to work, and they work all day. At noon, they work all day. At 3, and they work the rest of the day. And he, he hires a few at the very end of the day, like 5 p.m., and they work all day. And at the end of the day, he gets his foreman to go pay everybody. And when they pay everybody, he pays the guys first who got there last. So the guys who got there at 5 p.m., he pays them, and he pays them a full day's wage. So the rest of the crew is excited. They're thinking the farmer is feeling really generous today. And so they all get excited about what they're about to receive. But instead, the farmer pays everybody, no matter what time they came to work, a fool's day's wage. First time I heard that as a kid, I was so angry by the story Jesus is telling, which would tell you a little bit about my heart. And, and even as a grown man, there were times I would skip reading this passage because it just bothered me so much. Let me read to you. Just this one little part, I'll, I'll pick up at, uh, at verse 11. And when they received their pay, they protested the owner. Those people worked only an hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day. I love this. In the scorching sun, in the scorching heat. And he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am a kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then. And those who are first will be last. Man, that bothered me as a kid. I don't know. I was fighting hard to be moral. As a matter of fact, I would say, if it was a morality competition, I would have liked my chances, right? Kind of, I wasn't taught that. I was taught about grace, but I had learned something else. I would look around the room at church, at school, on my job, compare myself to others, and often feel like I was better than them. I won the morality competition. And when I read this, it just didn't seem fair. How is it fair that I'm... I'm fighting so hard to be this and, and somebody who has lived crazy and they come to the Lord, they're going to get the same thing I get. That, that makes no sense. And I struggled with it until, uh, really until college, I struggled with it. And eventually I saw in this passage that everybody in the story was jobless. None of them have a way, had a way to earn their wage for the next day's food. All of them needed a job, and he provided equally for each of them, which was uh, didn't seem exactly fair, but it was good. 
It wasn't something they earned. They did work all day, but they didn't deserve to have the job. And I started working through some stuff in my heart. In my 20s, uh, early 20s, I was at a camp, and I was sitting uh, with a bunch of college students, and they had bread and juice in the middle. And I don't know if you've ever done this. This is great. I mean, you can do it with your small group if you want to. Bring some, some bread and a little bit of grape juice and sit down and talk about the broken body of Jesus in the shed blood of Jesus. Don't talk about anything else. Don't talk about your week. Just talk about the broken body of Jesus in the shed blood of Jesus. And we sat in a circle and we were talking about it. And I don't know, it just overwhelmed me. I'm 19 or 20. I don't deserve to be here. I don't, I don't deserve that sacrifice. It was, it was the beginnings of me understanding grace. And I, I began to weep. I started, I started to cry right there with all my friends. I, I, just overwhelming. And this, this really cool thing happens when you begin to understand grace and that it was given to you and that you didn't deserve it. There's a freedom that comes. The pressure comes off. All this competition that I had inside of me, I was performing for other people and performing for myself. I thought I was performing for God. And all of a sudden, my performance, there's just no pressure on my performance. I had this freedom because of his sacrifice. My mid-20s, I was asked to go speak at a college. And they asked me to speak uh, from the book of Galatians. And I mean, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, grace, radius, grace. I read that book over and over that week. I picked up another book called Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll, and I read those books over and over. And there was this, the more I understood grace, the more freedom I had, the more excitement I had about Jesus. Cheryl and I planted our first church, and we would come home at night. Uh, we, we met at night, and we'd come home at night and just enjoy kind of a gracious, tiny little group of people. But as we, there was just, there was a no judgment zone there. Felt like we could go home and be at rest. It was a gift. In my 30s, I, I walked into a restaurant one day, and there was a, uh, another pastor. He's about my age, and he was leading a big church. And somehow I had forgotten. Ah, oh, forgotten may not be the right word. I, I just, I was jealous that day. Kind of wanted what he had and complained to God about it and decided to go walk. You can try this if you want to at home. I uh, Went to walk. I was frustrated with God. I told God, I'm, I'm not going to stop walking until you say something to me. So I began to walk. And I walked. And I walked. I walked around this farm. And I walked. And nothing. Nothing. Crickets. And finally, toward the end, I really felt God, not out loud, wasn't written in the dirt. It's just the impression on my heart. I felt like the Lord said to me, tell me that you love me. It was this crazy moment where I couldn't get the words out. I didn't want to get the words out. And I fought with it for a while. I felt like I made close to a full lap around the farm before I finally said it. And I said it verbally out loud. God, I love you. And the first time I said it, I struggled with it. And I said it again. I said it again. I started yelling, God, I love you. I love you. I, I, and there was this freedom that came. All of a sudden, it didn't matter what my performance was like, that the church I was leading wasn't growing and that his was. We weren't competing. I knew that on paper, but somehow in my heart it was distorted and, and I needed to come back and realize grace and the joy that comes from grace. I hope you haven't forgotten. If you have, 
It might be a great time to go home and go for a walk and walk until you can get to the point of saying that you love God and say it out loud. Even shout it if you must. C.S. Lewis actually tells this story of when he's 53. I turned 53 this year. When he was 53, he, had, he, he gained this new understanding of grace. It's really encouraging to me. He died at 64. But at 53, he had another time, he, and he tells multiple stories where grace became more clear. In this particular story, he says, joy has befallen me. He, he, he got this new understanding of grace. And I just want to tell you, regardless of your age in a room, whether you're 17, uh, whether you're 72, this would be a great opportunity to understand grace better you're like well that's a simple definition free and unmerited favor right but uh there's this deeper understanding that can grip your soul and give you freedom i think sometimes we talk about grace we can get a little concerned in a room like this that people aren't hearing about the holiness of god Certainly in our society today, holiness is not talking about enough. But today, I, I want to kind of put those two together because grace and holiness go side by side. I want to, you to hear how that works. First of all, grace freed me to think the best about everybody in this room. It uh, helped me worry less about what you think about me. It, it lifted some undefined anxiety that I carried around with me all the time. It helped me listen. Some of y'all won't believe this, but it even helped me lose. So what does holiness and grace look like together? How could we be like God on conversations in our society? Here's what it would look like. You would, if you were like God and you were holy, you would hate racism. But you would love racist. You would hate gossip. I hate gossip. But you would love gossipers. You would hate the cults, but you would love the deceived. You'd hate false religions, but you would love Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. You'd hate abortion, but you'd love the moms who've had one or two or three. You'd hate drunkenness, but you would love the drunk. You would hate uh, Drug, you'd hate the drugs, but you'd love the drug addicts. We could go on and on. You'd hate divorce, as Malachi says, but you'd love the divorcee. You'd hate the homosexual uh, homosexuality, but you would love homosexuals. Our God is holy, and He hates sin, but He loves people, and we're supposed to be His ambassadors. We're supposed to be the grace dis- distributors. In our county right here, in, in, in this part of the state, in the Midlands, we're supposed to be the grace distributors. People are supposed to know about God and who he is by the way we interact with them. So we can make clear statements about sin. But, man, if you miss it and you don't love people, then you don't get God. And some of the stuff out there that I hear these days seems like. We not only hate sin, but we hate sinners. Really bad news about that is you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And I'm so glad God loved me. There's a story that I've heard a couple times lately. If you grew up in church, I can still remember it when I hear, heard it as a boy. It just 
grabbed me. It was a story of a, of a man who, was, uh, who worked for a train company, and his job was to operate the drawbridge where the train came over. Some of you grew up, you've heard this many times, and some of you may have never heard it before. And he had this little eight-year-old boy that he loved. And they hung out, they fished, and they hunted, and they had this deep relationship. And this little boy loved trains, loved his dad's job, and even loved the people that would, he liked to see all the people in the trains as they come flying by on this big drawbridge that his dad operated. And so he'd go to work with his dad on a regular basis. And one particular day, the boy was out playing. He looked out and he saw a train coming. He could tell his dad was distracted. And so he ran and was waving for his dad and his dad didn't see him. And so he had learned from his father about this little red lever that if at the last minute you needed to get the bridge in place quickly, you pull the red lever. And so the boy rushed over. He just ate, leans down in the hole where the red lever is and he pulls it. And when he pulls it, he slips and he falls down into the gears that, that caused the bridge to close so that the uh, train could pass. The dad saw at the last minute this little boy that he loved fall into the gears and he was watching the train come close now. And he had to make this split second decision to either push his lever that would cause the gears to crank, that would crush his son, but it would save all the people on the train. And as the story goes, the dad decides to save the people, even though the people don't know the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, you can imagine the people coming all across that bridge that particular day and seeing the dad in anguish and having no idea that the blood of the son has been spilled on their behalf. Sound like a story you know? Yeah, that story about God the father crushing his son is not because the son was trying to fix it. The son actually volunteered to fix it. The father asked him to fix it. The son is crushed by the father. Both of them agreeing to do this on purpose because they wanted to save you. That's grace. Jesus was crushed on the cross to give you the free gift of salvation. I hope you believe. Many of y'all gone to church for a long, long time, but you don't understand grace. You know church, you know the rules, you know what's expected, but you don't understand grace. Man, don't nobody want to know the Jesus of ungrace? Do you know the Jesus that gave you something you didn't deserve? I hope you do. Let's pray to him now. Father, I have stories running through my mind of of close friends that have talked about you most of their lives and then here in recent years have just got sucked into this I don't know way of the world ungrace and they 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 seem like they can't afford to be wrong they got to be right all the time and they're they're ruining all of their relationships not only with you, but with their families and, and friends. And the next thing you know, they're in this kind of silo all by themselves, Lord. And I imagine some, there's some folks in this room right now that uh, don't understand grace, don't want to understand grace. Or, or when I read that story about the wages passed on to the, to the workers, uh, it just bothers them and they can't get it. And I, Lord, I hope you would help them get it. Father, I'm going to ask for myself and, I want to understand grace more. I pray you would teach me. Teach me about your grace. 
Teach Radius about your grace, Lord. We want to understand it so we can pass it on to others. Thank you so much for your patience with us. You are uh, you're faithful and true to us day after day after day. We trust you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.